Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K., Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. We're taking back America, but how you feeling, brother? You had a rough one the other day. I had a rough one yesterday, you bet. (laughs) I mean, if you had asked me yesterday morning how the Packers are going to do this year, I would have said, guaranteed Super Bowl. Absolutely guaranteed. I see our third party today is giving me a bad face on that one. <laughs> Guess somebody's a Kansas City Chiefs fan. It was as if it was a pre preseason game that counts. And it was truly, absolutely, truly abysmal. It was so bad. You know, in bowling, I used to bowl as a kid. In bowling, there's that point in a game, like if you've been doing badly, you put a black mark along the, the frame. Like hereafter, it's a, it's a new day kind of thing. Well, I felt like taking my calendar and just putting this black mark so that any Sunday or Monday night or Thursday night hereafter is a new day. And now I'm really going to piss off my Kansas City fans right now. And I tell you, along the way, when I heard the score from Kansas City, I thought, oh, good, at least Hartzell can't go after me because Casey's doing his bad. And then you guys won. And I was kind of mixed feelings, like, please for you. And thought to myself, oh, damn. <laughs> I was following along on your Twitter, Harvey. I'm not lying to you. I didn't realize what was going on at the Packers game until I saw your tweets. And you said, put love in. And I said, uh-oh, uh-oh. You know, uh-oh. that's funny. You didn't know what was going on, and neither did Aaron Rodgers. How do you like that? <laughs> <laughs> Professor Harvey K., you, you mentioned our third party because we're taking a look at the declarations of sentiment today, and it only seems right that, well, we got a woman on the show. Absolutely. And by the way, to completely throw off the whole, whole occasion, you two are the cutest podcasters. Seriously. Professor K., stop it some more. Stop it. It's me. You're the voice, and she's the face of this show. <laughs> Professor K., can you walk us through the declaration of sentiment? I mean, we are taking back America. This is another piece of radical history. Set up the stage, my friend. Okay. Okay, so everyone will not be surprised to hear that I'm going to start a little bit with Thomas Paine on this. And the reason I say that is the star of the Declaration of Sentiments is Elizabeth Cady Stanton from upstate New York. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her husband, well, her husband-to-be, they got married in 1839, 1840, and decided that they would take their honeymoon to London because they were both avid abolitionists. They both were avidly involved in the anti-slavery movement, which in itself was very much a split movement over a number of questions, one of which was the role of women. This was a really contested idea. There were those who were opposed to allowing women to be outspoken, and there were those who embraced the idea of women being active. Well, anyhow, they took their honeymoon to London because the World Anti-Slavery Conference was meeting in London, and given their commitment to abolition, they thought that would be a great way to spend the honeymoon. I can't tell you how long it took to cross the Atlantic to get there, but this was a major trip, you can imagine. When they got there, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking for them when I say they were shocked to discover that in the London anti-slavery community and the world anti-slavery community, 
women were not allowed to participate directly in the convention. So what that meant is that the men would sit on the convention floor. This was presumably held in some kind of large Protestant church. And the men would be allowed to sit on the floor and the women were relegated to the gallery. And I mean, you can imagine after having made a trip all the way to London, right? Eager to participate that Elizabeth Cady Stanton, newlywed woman, was pretty outraged. When she arrived in the gallery, she ended up sitting next to a very significant American woman named Lucretia Mott, who was herself a Quaker preacher. Apparently by this time, there were Quaker congregations that allowed such things thing as a woman preacher. And she was a preacher. She was also devoted to the anti-slavery cause, which is what led her to London as well. And while they were sitting there, they were fuming together over their marginalization at this event. And Mott and Stanton raised the possibility of someday convening a women's rights convention back in the United States. And they talked about this quite seriously. This is 1840, this meeting in London. And what Mott convinced Stanton to do when she went home to the States in preparation for a more direct role in this kind of radical action was to read the works of Thomas Paine, the American revolutionary, author of Common Sense, Rights of Man, Agrarian Justice. We've talked about those. And also the work of Mary Wollstonecraft. And Wollstonecraft was an English feminist who was very close and very friendly with Thomas Paine, especially when the two of them were kind of in exile from, from Britain in Paris during the French Revolution. Paine had gone back to Europe and, and would eventually come back to the United States. And in fact, thereafter, when she arrived back in the United States, for the rest of her days, she not only read Paine, she kept Paine's writings on her nightstand next to wherever she slept. And, and it clearly is the case that throughout her life, she made regular reference to pain, number one. Number two, that it wasn't only for political reasons, but also for religious reasons, because Elizabeth Cady Stanton, if she was not already, became a free thinker. That is a sort of a deist of sorts. Very late in her life, she organized a group of very progressive women to write a new Bible, a woman's Bible, which was very much inspired by Thomas Paine's arguments about how the Bible itself was not written by God, was not the truth. And so all of her work was always very much influenced by Paine. There were ways in which she was decidedly different than Paine. Well, we'll get to that. So anyhow, when they got back, Katie Stanton, by the way, not only was newly married, in the years upcoming, she would be giving birth. I can't remember how many children she had, but she never really went out on the lecture circuit in the early years, or even for that matter, middle years of her marriage because she was at home. However, along the way, she and Mott met up again, maybe in mid-1840s. And once again, they discussed the possibility of a women's rights convention. Finally, in 1848, it was resolved to convene this gathering in Seneca Falls, New York, the Finger Lakes of New York. Seneca Falls is up on the top end of one of the Finger Lakes, um, very much in the northern part of New York State, northwestern part of New York State. And at this gathering, it was a gathering of women held at the Wesleyan Methodist Church in Seneca Falls. It was a two-day event with a series of sessions. The first session was, I believe, strictly for women. And after that, men were allowed to attend. And it's important to note that among the men who attended was a figure, one of the most prominent figures of 19th century American radicalism, Frederick Douglass, the self-emancipated slave who went on to become arguably the greatest orator of the 19th century, major abolitionist figure. And we're going to deal with him next week by way of what to the slave is the 4th of July. So at this convention, a series of resolutions were introduced. 
it was pretty much decided. I think it was Katie Stanton herself, but in conversation with a couple of the other figures at the at the meeting, that they would craft the statement to be issued, the declaration to be issued in the fashion of the Declaration of Independence. And as we go through it, people will see there is a preamble. We don't necessarily have to read the whole preamble, but the opening lines of the preamble, I think, are significant because people will immediately hear the degree to which they were standing on the shoulders of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. So in order not at all to fault ourselves and rather than have a male voice lead off, Kitty, if you don't mind, can I ask you to take on the first long sentence? When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied, but one to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes that impel them to such a course. Now, Hartzell, what do you find curious about that opening long sentence? I'm going to quiz you. I won't, I won't put Kitty on the spot because I know she, she probably knows all the answers. Well, I mean, the one portion of the family of man. Of man, yeah. Yeah, that part kind of stands out to me. People have debated this forever and ever regarding the Declaration itself when they refer to mankind. And, you know, the only explanation we can afford is the fact that man or mankind generally refer to men and women at that time. So it wasn't like they were bowing to, to male rhetoric. That was just a general understanding. And the term that we might use today would probably be humanity. But it's possible that both at the time of the 1776 and here in 1848, the word humanity sounded too French. It's just possible. <laughs> Somebody will, will probably write to us and say, what are you talking about, Harvey? You don't know. But I've said that to my students because like, it's hard to understand why they wouldn't have changed that. But of course, if we go on to the next sentence, we'll see the most significant change as a part of this sort of preamble. Okay. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure those rights, governments are instituted deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. See, there, in many ways, people who know anything about the Declaration of Sentiments, that's usually where they start. Maybe because they don't want to deal with that question of why is it referring to men and mankind in the first. But they always say the thing that distinguishes this document. In fact, I'm not even sure most people remember what comes after it is that line. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Now, that strikes us as very politically correct today. But I could tell you back in the in 1848, I can imagine and I mean this seriously, that when people read this, especially men who had little sympathy for their cause, probably laughed. And in fact, Lucretia Mott, uh, I believe at the convention, would occasionally say that they had to make sure they didn't write something that people would laugh at. But I think she underestimated the degree to which even the very idea of what we would say gender equality would, would literally lead certain men to, you know, what's the word guffaw, that old term. But let's let's move towards what we consider to be, you know, just as the Declaration of Independence had appended to it a series of, what would you call it, accusations and charges against the king of England and Britain, here in this case, it's a series of accusations and charges against man, men. I'm just going to read this opening line and then let you guys take it from there. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman. In direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, 
Let facts be submitted to a candid world. And we'll take each one of these, if it's okay with you. And if you don't mind, take it and then we'll pause and see if there's anything we want to sort of comment on. Kitty, take it away. He has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. Now, it's interesting when you think about it, that if you said Seneca Falls to people who had any idea of Seneca Falls, they would always tell you, Oh, yeah, that's the beginning of the women's suffrage movement. And there's a certain historical irony in that, because, yes, it is, arguably. But the irony is that at the convention, there was no presumption going into it that this would be a convention calling for women's right to vote. It was an assertion, perhaps, of women's equality, an assertion that women had been unjustifiably for for generation upon generation oppressed and tyrannized. But when it was raised, the question of suffrage, it was not immediately embraced by by everyone at the convention. And when the resolution of this line came up, what actually ends up happening is that there's dissent. And yet, this is the interesting thing. One very significant figure stands to argue in favor of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's desire to, to see it be included, and that is Frederick Douglass. And it's a real testimony to Douglass. Douglass was already thinking that the right to vote should be a universal. And he already had the idea of universal rights. I think that's very telling of his really advanced thinking, okay? Because in fact, you'll see in a little while that it's arguable that some of these women did not quite share that sense of universality as they should have. Okay, you you take the next one, Hartzell. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. That's because women, as they couldn't vote, neither could they sit in any kind of assembly or Senate of the day. So since they actually had no voice, women speaking in public was generally frowned upon, okay? Generally frowned upon. In fact, just as a historical aside, one of the reasons that churches seemed to become the place where women governed, as in the sense of shaped the churches themselves, not the Catholic Church, obviously, is the fact that women in some ways found that was the one place where they could push themselves forward. Now, the next line is the one that I was hinting at or suggesting at a moment ago. He has withheld from her rights which are given to the most ignorant and degraded men, both natives and foreigners. Now, the first part of that sentence is a class thing. That means here are these women who were from middle and upper, well, generally from comfortable families to call for their rights to be acknowledged. And they knew that even poor working class men whose votes might well have been bought by a beer, that they could vote. This is what they were thinking. But then the the further giveaway as to their attitudes is that next word, both natives and foreigners. Now, I actually have a little WTF next to written down next to that. Okay, And the reason I do that is in years to come, and this is a sort of a hint as to what's going to come, After the Civil War or late in the Civil War, when Lincoln himself, and we'll get to Lincoln in a few weeks, obviously, when Lincoln himself in one of his last important speeches, a speech which, by the way, probably truly cost him his life because it's quite likely John Wilkes Booth heard him make this speech having to do with the fact that, yes, I think the way he put it is that educated black men should have the right to vote. What he probably meant is no illiterate people should vote. We got to get them all educated to vote. When Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other suffragists of that time, feminists of that time, thought that the Civil War might lead to the enfranchisement of black 
men, formerly slaves. It occurred to them that they would be left out and blacks, black men would be afforded the right to vote. And this really did express a kind of, I mean, I, there was a streak of racism in there, an undeniable streak of racism in there. And I'll also mention, and sorry, I don't mean to go on at length, but there was one feminist who actually was actually ahead of Elizabeth Cady Stanton named Ernestine Rose. She was a Polish Jew who then made her way to, to Berlin. In Berlin, she became very skilled as a maker of scents, S-C-E-N-T-S. She was a perfume maker. And from Berlin, she moved to London, where she married Henry Rose, I believe was his name. And the two of them were also avid abolitionists and active politically progressive people. And they moved to New York. And in New York, Ernestine Rose became the leader of the Thomas Paine Memorial Society. Yeah, I mean, she was she was she fought for women's right to own property. She fought against slavery. She fought in every progressive movement. She was on the platform speaking right alongside the leading men, white and black of the day. And so she's actually in some ways out ahead of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And I will also add, I don't believe she was at Seneca Falls, but she's at the heart of the feminist movement of the day. Later, she becomes the secretary to Susan B. Anthony. Oh, wow. And Susan B. Anthony was on a lecture tour. And by the way, Susan B. Anthony was not at Seneca Falls. Her first interest, I believe, in the case of Anthony was the temperance movement, then the anti-slavery movement, and, and then feminism. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony become basically intellectual and political partners eventually. But before that, it's Ernestine Rose who's really, not unlikely, scheduling her talks, helping her write the speeches she's going to give, and generally pushing her left. Elizabeth Cady Stanton disdained Ernestine Rose because she was a Polish Jewish immigrant. So it wasn't simply the question of race. She also seemed to have a streak of anti-Semitism and generally a kind of anti-immigrant. It's a tragedy because it really did over time stand in the way of solidarity between the movements. Bring up a really great point about that clashing that went on when it came with black folks and, you know, women's liberation. There was always a bit of, yeah, we're in this together, but also don't get in the way of what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Look, unity on the left has always been the ideal. You know, but it's clearly it's hard to pull off. I mean, just think about it this way. Even if you remove the question of race and gender completely from the picture, think how hard it is to get liberals and progressives and socialists on the same platform, <laughs> even though all might very well support the idea of expanding for Medicare for all of doing the kinds of things that, you know, would make sense in the 21st century. So should we continue? Kitty, why don't you pick up the next one? Okay. Having deprived her of this right of a citizen, the elective franchise thereby leaving her without representation in the halls of legislation, he has oppressed her on all sides. Notice they introduced this idea of representation here. Let's not forget the American Revolution began in a rebellion that basically had as its slogan, no legislation without representation. Notice I often avoid no taxation without representation, because that's what the conservatives want us to believe, that it just was simply about taxes. Representation, that's the key thing here, okay? Hartzell, why don't you get the next one? He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. That's a blunt statement. I mean, civilly dead. Back at the time of the American and French revolutions, they used to talk about active and passive citizenry. The active citizen had the right to vote. The passive citizen was a citizen, but 
didn't have the right to vote. They've gone beyond that. They're making it clearer. It's not a matter of active and passive. It's a matter of alive and dead. This is a really, really, this is a very smartly written document, except for the stuff which is crude and intolerant. Okay, the next one. He has taken from her all right in property, even to the wages she earns. And I think what they had in mind there is that if a woman did make any money, it was her obligation to hand it over to her father, you know, husband, to her partner. And and not to make too much of a joke of this, but do you charge Kitty rent? No, we're, we're, we're a team, Professor K. We do it together. Good, good, good. Very good. Actually, Kitty, do you charge him rent? Full price. <laughs> Full price. Right? And then some. And then some. <laughs> I talked to Kitty on the side last week and I said, let's smack him around a bit. <laughs> Actually, I did find this interesting. I recently was reading about women's movement, suffrage and everything around the turn of the century. About 60% of women, if they worked, were domestic servants. They weren't even allowed to have real jobs. So why would you even want to work? Well, good point. And probably the overwhelming majority of them were not what you would think. So clearly a goodly number were African-American women. But the other ones were... Irish American women. Mm. Because I just did that, Kitty, if you'd rather I read the next one. I got it. Okay, good. He has made her morally an irresponsible being as she can commit many crimes with impunity, provided they be done in the presence of her husband. In the covenant of marriage, she is compelled to promise obedience to her husband. He becoming, to all intents and purposes, her master, the law giving him power to deprive her of her liberty and to administer chastisement. That last is, of course, a reference probably to physical punishment, you know, to be treated as if, as if a child and people shouldn't beat their kids either. But in the 19th century, that was pretty much what it meant. I never forget, this is years and years ago when women's studies first entered the curriculum and my students would come from women's studies classes and we'd be doing something like this and they'd say, do you realize for how many generations a wife could not accuse her husband of rape. In fact, there may be places where she still can't. I, I just don't know. And also, by the way, in the previous one about even to the wages she earns, we, we know all too well that even now with all the laws in place that women are still paid less than men, even for doing similar work or the same work or punished because they somehow might have, you know, might take off a year for having a a child, that kind of thing. Hartzell, you got the next one? He has so framed the laws of divorce as to what shall be the proper causes of divorce in case of separation to whom the guardianship of the children shall be given as to be wholly regardless of the happiness of women. The law, in all cases, going upon the false supposition of the supremacy of man and giving all power into his hands. I will tell you, the first time I ever read the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments, this one really surprised me. Not for what it argued, but just just for the fact that it pointed out that divorce existed. I, I didn't even know you could get divorced in the 19th century. And because when I was growing up in the 50s and the 60s, it seemed as if divorce was even then hard to secure. People would go to Reno, Nevada or, or down to Mexico to get a divorce. So it was, you know, that kind of thing. At least that's what the tabloid newspapers would, would report. This is interesting that, that these women are making it clear that men have monopolized the power and authority over the question of divorce or literally separation, which which, by the way, is important to consider that it, it follows from the prior charge that women have no power in the marriage. And that included the possibility of men physically, seriously, physically abusing women. And you would think that, indeed, how can a woman escape this? And that comes up, of course, in that very next one. After depriving her of 
all rights as a married woman. If single and the owner of property, he has taxed her to support a government which recognizes her only when her property can be made profitable to it. So I guess this refers to the fact there were places where women could inherit property, but nevertheless still had to pay taxes on doing so, which seems a terrible injustice given the fact that probably when they inherited the property, some male came in and took charge of it anyhow. I'd just like to point out that had I lived in these days, I would have just killed my husband. That's true, Harvey. I can't confirm that. She's you know? mentioned that many times. I, I now fear for your life, Harvey. <laughs> you? you know, I do want to say in defense of the state where I was born and, and grew up, although I tell people I'm a New Yorker, I lived in and out of New York as growing up, but I really was born in New Jersey. When the United States was first created, there was one state that actually did afford women the right to vote, and that was the state of New Jersey. It didn't last very long. I think it lasted for about a generation, and then it was withdrawn. I don't know the full story, but I know that it was withdrawn. He has monopolized nearly all the profitable employments, and from those she is permitted to follow, she receives but a scanty remuneration. I love when people try. That's a tough word, by the way. And I'm not picking on you. The professor in me comes out. Remuneration. Yeah. Yeah. But in fact, Kitty, why don't you read the next one, too? Because these two fit together. He closes against her all the avenues to wealth and distinction, which he considers most honorable to himself. As a teacher of theology, medicine, or law, she is not known. Right. In other words, she's left out. She's left out of the avenues to wealth and distinction, as they point out, and decidedly left out because schools of theology, medicine, and law just won't even admit her. And by the way, over in England, let me get the year, 1828, University College London was was founded by, amongst other people, and the group that created it was a guy named Jeremy Bentham, who was famous as a philosopher, in fact, a utilitarian philosopher. I'm telling everyone this because this is where I actually was one of the schools where I studied for my master's degree in, when I was at the University of London. They actually decided they were going to be a new radical kind of college or university because Oxford and Cambridge did not admit women, did not admit men if they were not members of the Church of England. I mean, basically speaking, it was elite. And the only things you could study there at Oxford or Cambridge were theology or classics. So University College London was created as an example to the to other universities in the English-speaking world, one would imagine. And they not only admitted men, they also admitted women with no religious training or, for that matter, belong to any particular church. And you could study a whole array of subjects, including medicine. So here in the United States, though there were colleges that taught many subjects, it really was the case that women were excluded from them. And in the course of the 19th century, women came to basically create their own colleges. And in the later 19th century, the state colleges were opened, of course, to women. So uh, a sign of how old I am, which I don't like to talk about too much, <laughs> is that when I went as an undergraduate to Rutgers, it was still an all-male college, which is not that unusual at the time. The Ivy schools, they were all all-male, but there were women's colleges. And at New Jersey, we were the, the elite public college Rutgers, but there was an even more elite public women's college. Okay, now they're they're merged into just the one solid university. And in that vein, I'll just read the next one. He has denied her the facilities for obtaining a thorough education, all colleges being closed against her. At this point in time, there was no college open to women I, that I'm aware of. That's their argument here. Okay. Hartzell, you want to go to the next one? He allows her in church as well in state, but a subordinate position, claiming apostolic authority for her 
exclusion from the ministry, and with some exceptions, from any public participation in the affairs of the church. They're saying it's not only a matter of women being marginalized or subordinated in public life, civic and political life. This is also true in religious life. And you can imagine these women are themselves actively involved in churches, and they know the degree to which they are, to some extent, marginalized. But it's also the case, it's in this period of time that women are really advancing their status in the churches. Well, the Protestant churches, to be clear about it. He has created a false public sentiment by giving to the world a different code of morals for men and women, by which moral delinquencies which exclude women from society are not only tolerated, but deemed of little account in man. In those straightforward terms, it has to do with sex. And later, a term emerges, often used against women, because if a woman believed in this, somehow she was, you know, you know, a whore, a slut, a prostitute. Free love is a 19th century term. First time I heard it, I, you know, I thought, wow, I just didn't even know what it meant. I was a you know, kid. But it's the case that later, um, one of the foremost feminists of the latter part of the 19th century, Victoria Woodhull, she was gutsy. She didn't have the right to vote, but she ran for president. And by the way, her vice presidential candidate was Frederick Douglass. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I didn't know that. <laughs> and her platform, I believe, or at least she was an advocate of free love, Victoria Woodhull. Good for her. But it is the case that this, of course, means that a man could get away with the things that a woman couldn't without losing his reputation. Okay, back to you, Kitty. He has usurped the prerogative of Jehovah himself, chiming it as his light to assign for her a sphere of action when that belongs to her conscience and her God. It's like men act in relation to women as if they were God, as if they were God. And of course, you can imagine that line, which became a more comical one recently is what, who died and may you king, right. you know, that right. kind of thing. Okay, Hartzell. He has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her powers, to lessen her self-respect and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. I and mean, what this refers to is what we would today call a culture war on women. That is, they've already pointed out all the ways in which politically, economically, and morally, you might say, she is subordinate. Their point is, and then to add to this, is that in generation after generation, women have been propagandized. And I'll use a term I never use because I don't like it. Brainwashed to believe that this is the natural state of affairs. I, I don't like the word brainwashed because it's too often used basically to treat other people as if they're stupid without really appreciating the reasons people might subscribe to things we might not. And it's our obligation to figure that out and not merely write people off as stupid. And in conclusion, in view of this entire disfranchisement of one half the people of this country, their social and religious degradation, in view of the unjust laws above mentioned, and because women do feel themselves aggrieved, oppressed, and fraudulently deprived of their most sacred rights, we insist that they have immediate admission to all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of these United States. And then, of course, they announce they're going to undertake if you like, I'll use the term crusade. I don't mean it in the classic sense. I mean it in the sense of a campaign, a fierce campaign they're going to pursue to secure their rights. Declaration of Sentiments. So, Professor K, I'm curious, and Kitty, jump in on this as well. In my history classes, you know, we touched on the ERA. You know, we did touch on women's suffrage in the 20s, the turn of the 20th century, but it seems like we never did make it far enough back to Seneca Falls and 1848. Kitty, did you know anything about this? Did you get any deep dives in this in high school? No, plainly, no. When you mentioned it, I was like, I feel like I've heard of it. I, I know of Seneca Falls and I've definitely never been there, but definitely no in-depth 
Yeah. And, you know, the curious thing about that is just starting off with the text itself that we just went through is that when my students read it, I say to them, allowing for the change in language, we might use different words. So instead of remuneration, we might say pay or income, things like that. It is the case that all of those lines are demands or charges, they really are, against men and manhood and all that kind of stuff. But basically speaking, they really resonate today. I mean, a few years ago when Me Too was basically the, the cultural story of the day, students immediately, immediately made sense of it. And they actually recognized in the text the direct connection to Me Too that I had not necessarily recognized. I had myself gotten so, if you like, indoctrinated to the idea that this really was about the women's right to vote, that I sort of had not paid as much attention to all of these other truly significant charges and, and demands that, that, that were made. It, it isn't just Seneca Falls, it's all of these radical texts, as, as Hartzell and I have tried to emphasize, that have in many ways been marginalized, or if they're not marginalized, because people, they do refer to Seneca Falls in the, in the school books, but it's a question of to what extent they treat the past as alive in the present, number one, or another way to look at it is, do they do what I just did, and that is reduce it to the question of the right to vote, and then lament the fact that it took another 80 years to secure a federal amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing women the right to vote. We should point out that states did in the late 19th century enact at the state level the right to vote. By the way, this is a trivia question. This is not a quiz. Can either one of you tell me which state was the first state in the United States to grant women the right to vote? When I first read this, I was amazed. And then it, maybe it made sense I'm going to tell you something about the British Commonwealth and where the right to vote was first enacted. And then maybe that'll give you a clue. The first place in the British Commonwealth, maybe actually in the world that we're offering women, that we're guaranteeing women the right to vote, I believe were Australia and New Zealand. Okay, for what it's worth. Okay. I'm not going to give you the reason that I think that was the case, but I was, I wondered if that kind of geographical reference. I'm, think, I'm thinking Victoria, Queen Victoria, because it has something to do with Australia. Uh, well, that that's, that, I, that's a alone? good idea, but it's wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least as far as I can tell. You got anything, Kitty? Any guesses? Give me a state. Wyoming? Yes, it's exactly Wyoming. How did you know why? How the I hell? just learned there were the first four states and I knew one of them was Wyoming. I'm going to give a reason. And again, somebody's going to write into us by Twitter or some other Facebook. Who the hell knows where? And they'll say, Harvey doesn't know what he's talking about. But listen, the only explanation I could afford is Australia and New Zealand needed women to emigrate to there. They needed women from Britain and Europe come to Australia, right? And maybe Wyoming, you know. You can imagine how many men went out to mine or ranch and, and, you know, we all read about mail order brides and all that. And maybe this way it would show women that if they came out, they'd be empowered. By the way, so, a women's historian, if you're listening by any chance, send me a note on Twitter at Harvey JK. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm more than happy to be corrected. Okay. Kitty up top. Look at you go. My girl. There you go. Right. Absolutely. And everyone should know that Kitty is pursuing a degree right now, and she's taking late 19th century history and more power to her. And by the way, if this were Jeopardy, man. You just want us a bunch of money, Kitty. You just want us a bunch of money. However, if this were Jeopardy and I hit the button, Hartzell would glare at me. That's not true. It's true. That's not true at all. I'd say take it away, baby. Take it away. So Professor K, as we, as we wrap up, we talk a lot about Common Sense, Thomas Paine, you know, that document. It not just laid out a foundation for, you know, future works, the Declaration, the Constitution, but it also got folks fired up, right? So what about the Declaration of Sentiments? I mean, we know there was some backlash, but there's also folks that took this and, and ran with it, right? Susan B. Anthony, when she convinced the people who were manning the, I, in quotes, manning the voting place 
in upstate New York where she lived, she talked those men into letting her vote in eight, in the 1870s one time. Which, and by the way, after which she was charged with committing an illegal act. And she then went on a speaking tour. She was very good at doing speaking tours. And in the lecture circuit, she quoted Thomas Paine and said, the right to vote is the right by which we protect all our other rights. So in a fashion, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was right to emphasize the right to vote. The point is that if we read the full text, we'll see the degree to which that even with the right to vote, all of these other rights have not been have not been secured. And listen, Kitty, he can edit this out if he wants afterward. But I was going to say, if, if you feel like you'd like to join us more often, you know, just just tell him. If you're doing late 19th century now, you yeah. might enjoy knowing yeah. about. Well, right now we're still going to be in the in the mid 19th century with Frederick Douglass. We're going to go to what to the slave is the Fourth of July, 1852 was that sermon lecture speech. Then I guess we'll be going on to uh, Lincoln, which is take us towards the Civil War and into the Civil War. Yeah. I guess the Keith yeah. speech for us. We should do more than one. Lincoln's speech, but let's imagine we'll do the Gettysburg Address at the least, right? And then the later 19th century, I think we really ought to maybe turn to, I don't know, Eugene Debs, or I'm, I'm sure there's somebody else I'm missing in there that we'll correct ourselves with later. And then we'll be moving into the stuff you'll be doing post-Civil War. I, again, I'm in the two history classes, so you guys are kind of giving me like a really weird in the middle background knowledge. One of my classes right now, we're in the 1700s and moving forward. The other one is from 1880 onward. So, yeah, I'm like, well, I can just re-listen. Yes, you could. And then you can always ask us a question at any time on the show. Yes, too. In any course in Western Civ, if you're now in the 17th century, if they don't properly deal with Thomas Paine, then, then it's time for us to get that professor educated. <laughs> I love it. Professor Harvey K. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Professor K., give these folks one more time your Twitter handle so we can get some questions for next week because we're going to be talking about Frederick Douglass. At Harvey, H-A-R-V-E-Y-J, just the initial J, K-A-Y-E. And for what it's worth, I'm not on Facebook or at least... I may have a Facebook page that I'm, I don't even look at. It goes back years and I didn't create it. Somebody did it in my name. So don't waste time asking me to be a friend. I, I don't I don't look at it. But I love I love everybody who, who communicates with me on on Twitter. And we've gotten some Kansas City folks that I think are, are now fans of Harvey JK. Yeah. In fact, some of them don't follow me on Twitter, but I always love seeing the Kansas City podcast coalition or something yeah. like that. Various uh, sports departments at colleges in the Kansas City area. They, they love you. So they, they retweet us. We got a good thing, my friend. We got a, a damn good thing as we take back America. I'm going to email this episode to both of my professors and be like, yo, Little, little extra credit? What's up? Extra credit. <laughs> <What's> up? Extra <laughs> Use this as a resource for next year. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, we don't charge a lot. <laughs> Professor K, we'll chat next week. You bet. Great Bye. to see you, Kitty. Nice to see you. 